to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to the first episode of the Business Divorce Podcast. We are never, ever, ever getting back together a business divorce case study. I'm your host, Richard Leach. That is L-I-C-H-T, but it sounds like Peach. And I have an excellent cast of business divorce attorneys to present this episode entitled, It's Definitely You, Not Me. Compare that to Jerry Seinfeld and George Costanza, who whenever they broke up with a woman said, it's definitely me, not you. Before I introduce the panel, I want to welcome you to the wonderful world of business divorce, which is the exact opposite of the wonderful world of Disney. Business divorce is typically defined as litigation for the purpose of separating the owners of closely held private business entities who often view the business as a sort of child for whom no shared custody arrangement is possible. Thus, emotions tend to run high. Hence the term business divorce. Therefore, a good business divorce lawyer needs not only the skills of a fine corporate lawyer and a good litigator, but also the patience of Job and the psychological skills of Freud. In order to fully immerse you in the world of business divorce, we'll be presenting a fictional fact pattern containing many of the real world situations business divorce practitioners see on a regular basis. Of course, any similarities to actual persons or events are purely coincidental. As we tell this story, we will break from time to time to discuss real-world approaches to the issues presented. And now I'd like to introduce you to the cast and crew of this production. As I mentioned at the outset, I'm Richard Leach, and I serve as an Associate Justice on the Rhode Island Superior Court. I frequently handle business divorce matters, and I'll be chiming in from time to time with a view from the bench. Our first cast member is Attorney One. Thank you, Judge Leach. My name is John C. Shakota. I'm a member at Ehrenberg Goldgen in Chicago, uh, where I concentrate on business divorce and ownership dispute matters, as well as commercial litigation. I'm also proudly uh, the co-founder of the Chicago Bar Association's Business Divorce and Complex Ownership Disputes Committee and a current chair of that committee. And you have a client named Parker Pete. I do, a great client. Thank you, Judge. This is Byung Sook. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of playing Parker Pete. I also have the pleasure of being the sole member of this cast that's west of the Mississippi I practice law with the uh, with the firm of Snell and Wilmer in Denver, Colorado, and I have an emphasis in business divorce as a litigation attorney. Again, I'm looking forward to participating. Thank you. Attorney Two, will you introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Odera Nawazi. As mentioned, I'll be playing Attorney Two. I'm a partner with Bakery Drinker Biddle and Wreath in Wilmington, Delaware, in Philadelphia. 
My primary focus is in corporate governance, M&A litigation, as well as negotiating and litigating business divorce issues. Thanks for having me. And your client is Stacy Gwynn. Hi, Judge Leach. This is Melissa Donomirsky. I'm an attorney at uh, Heyman and Nario, Gattuso and Herzl in Wilmington, Delaware, where I focus on corporate uh, and commercial litigation, most especially in the Delaware Court of Chancery. And I, I specialize in business divorce and ownership disputes. I'm also the chair, uh, I'm sorry, co-chair of the business divorce subcommittee of the uh, business litigation section of the ABA. And I'm so happy to be here. And now let me take you into the office of attorney one who is busy reviewing his draft bills and complaining about the number of hours an associate took to analyze the history of the First Amendment rights from the Magna Carta to the present day when Parker Pete arrives. Mr. Pete is a wealthy investor who asked for a meeting with attorney one to discuss an issue he has with his business partner, Stacy Gwynn. Hi, Mr. Pete. It's a pleasure and honor to meet you, and thanks for meeting with me. I understand that you may be going through a business divorce. Hi, please call me Parker. I go, that's, that's what I prefer uh, being referred to. But what's a business divorce? Well, that's a very good question, Parker, and I appreciate you asking that. It's a general term to describe disputes between owners of a private company. Attorneys often get involved to try to find ways for the owners to go their separate ways. When you called, you mentioned you're having some issues with your partner, Stacy Gwen, which suggests you may be involved in a business divorce. Yeah, Stacy and I have been friends forever. We even dated for a while. Now we're in business together. Uh, Stacy's an incredibly gifted mathematician and chemist. She developed a prototype of a device that's perfect for the citizen vigilante market. You know, this this may be an odd question, but what's the citizen vigilante market? Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Kick-Ass? Never mind. There there are people in this world who want to intimately be involved in addressing issues that negatively affect their community. For these, quote-unquote, concerned citizens, we want to provide them with the tools to achieve their goals. Okay. Now I have it. So it's, in a sense... It's it's what is a prototype. Would that be accurate? Yeah, it's it's called the Phoenix, a flame-proof suit. You see, Stacy wanted my help set up a business selling another product, the web shooter. It's a complicated device to use, but it shoots extremely strong light and extremely adhesive fluid, great distances, and allows a user to shake the fluid in any manner. But I convinced Stacy that she could make more profit using her skills to develop the Phoenix which could be used with the web suitor. And of course, she agreed to work on the Phoenix. So we decided to go into business together and agreed on the following. I would invest $5 million to establish a startup, Mayben, LLC, in return for my business acumen and connections. I would be issued 70% of the company's membership interest, become a board member, and receive a salary for my efforts. Stacy would develop the products and assign all IP to Mayben. Stacy would be the CEO, manager, and a board member and be responsible for day-to-day operations. Stacy would not invest any funds because she, quite frankly, doesn't have much in financial assets. 
In return, Stacy would hold 30% of the company's membership interest. And as long as Stacy is a member, she would be employed by the company. One of my first questions is, do you have an operating agreement? You know, nah, we're really close friends. I, I knew I could trust her. So we just have a very basic operating agreement we got off the internet. Okay. So how did the company do? Business is good. My guidance has led to annual increases in profits of 6% for the last three years. But now, Stacy wants a higher share of the company's membership interest and a higher salary. We had talked about maybe increasing her share and salary if the company was successful, but we never really settled on anything. I don't think it's wise. Plus, we haven't made enough to issue distributions. And now, Stacy set up a competing company, Sinister Six Inc. It's spelled S-I-N-E-S-T-E-R and the digit six. I'm concerned that Stacy will sell the web shooter through that company. I'm growing very concerned that our assets are being used to form a competing company. What am I supposed to do? We're going to pause our intrepid characters to consider several issues raised by Mr. Pete's narrative. First, we have an LLC in this case. How does that affect Mr. Pete's options for business divorce? Well, Darren Wazza here. Usually, in, in most states, the LLC agreement can be formed in, in any way that the parties choose with some constraints by whatever the LLC Act says in that state. And, and one of the features that can be in the LLC agreement is the ability to separate and liquidate the LLC in, in a way that's, that's most comfortable and conducive uh, for, for the members of the LLC. Given that they just took a stock form off of the internet, we don't really know what that says of, about their ability to wind down the company and whether it, it provides mechanisms for them to do so in a way that doesn't require either judicial intervention or having to rely on whatever the statute says. I think that's important to understand is that the operating agreement is crucial and people Clients are anxious to get into their business. It's like a marriage. They don't want to talk about a prenuptial agreement, but that's in many ways what it, it should be. It's, it's not only an agreement on how you operate, but a well-drafted operating agreement will also say how you separate, how you do get divorced if things don't work out. When I was in practice, and, and I see it uh, from the bench, it's very hard to get the clients who are anxious to go into business to focus on the issues of what could go wrong. The other interesting thing about this this case is that we've got a huge majority owner here. Mr. Pete has 70% of the membership interest. And if, he, if this were a, a corporation, he would have the ability to squeeze out Stacy, based on the the corporate laws, he could do either a reverse stock split or a uh, a squeeze out merger just based on his membership interest. Now, in this case, we've got a two member board of managers, which decreases his ability to control the entity, given that it's, it's a fifty fifty control situation on the board. He may have other abilities to to do things 
with his 70% membership interest, but it really depends on what the LLC agreement says. And if we're assuming that it's, it's an internet agreement, there may not be provisions that address what a majority membership vote can do. This is John Shakota. Melissa, that's a great point. And Judge Leach and, and everyone has made some very good points. I recently had a case where there was a, some confusion regarding the language of the operating agreement. And by the way, I agree with everyone. The operating agreement in writing is critical to any relationship with respect to forming and going into to a business in an LLC. But one of the issues that came in this case was whether or not there were two managers, there was a 65-35 split in terms of ownership, and whether or not there was one person, one vote for the management, or did it relate back to your ownership percentage? So, you know, these are very important issues when going into business and using a stock operating agreement is the absolute worst step that anyone can take when going into something serious like going into business, notwithstanding a friend or not. Yeah, and this is Bjorn. So if I agree with what John's saying, a lot of clients come in to a business divorce situation that don't even have these stock internet agreements. But when they do have these agreements, what they, what most of the parties of these agreements don't realize is in most jurisdictions, these form agreements aren't robust enough to address many of the issues that arise so that the state's versions of the LLC Act will fill in the gaps that are missing. And, <laughs> and, and then these members are surprised at how uh, these contracts, which are the operating agreements, can be changed through certain things of also contract theory, such as amendments through a course of performance or some sort of other writing, such as an email agreement on how to uh, proceed going forward or how ownership's interest will be affected, such as the fact scenario here where there was a verbal agreement about increasing ownership and salary in the future. That, in theory, could be enforceable if it was memorialized in writing and in some jurisdictions where there is an explicit statute that says the statute of frauds do not apply to operating agreements. I can see a good attorney trying to wedge that into, uh, instead of an employment uh, kind of agreement, into a operating agreement, try to argue that, hey, now that this certain revenue has been made, Ms. Stacy uh, is due some uh, increases in membership as well as compensation. That raises a good uh Question. Parker seems to be concerned that Stacy will sell WebShooter through her new company, Sinister Six. So what steps should have been taken to mitigate that risk before Mayben became a functioning business? What should the parties have agreed to? Well, there are all kinds of protections you can put in an LLC agreement or even agreements that flow from the LLC agreement. There could have been non-competes or other restrictive covenants to prevent competing businesses. And so thinking through those issues could have potentially cut off Miss Stacy from what Mr. Parker thinks that she might do. Well, there's also the issue of she has fiduciary duties unless they're specifically disclaimed in this operating agreement. And assuming that 
this form operating agreement doesn't do that, she has a, a duty not to compete with the company. If the parties had wanted to permit her to compete with the company, they could have put a provision into that LLC agreement permitting competition that would allow her to run her competing business with certain limitations, including, you know, she's not allowed to use the confidential information of the first company for her competing company and that sort of thing. But I think in this point, at this place, it sounds like Mr. Parker has a good, good improper competition claim. Uh, we, don't we also have an intellectual property issue, whether the web shooter or for that matter, the Phoenix has any kind of patent or uh, trade secret. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at it from that angle, too, that if there's, you know, obviously confidential proprietary trade secret information and her role as a manager as well, obviously gives a heightened fiduciary duty that she has to her partner and to, to the company. But I was looking at it from a trade secret misappropriation issue, too, which often arises in these business divorce cases. This may also fall underneath a corporate opportunity analysis. Was the corporate opportunity presented to the company and was it decided not to pursue an opportunity? If so, then sometimes the fiduciaries are now then free to pursue it on their own if it's been fully disclosed and they're fully seeking that opportunity that the business decided not to pursue. It's not clear to me. And that's why I said that if some of this was better spelled out in an LLC agreement or something else, it's not clear to me that the web shooter is in the same line of business as Maybank because Maybank is created for the citizen vigilante market. And the way Parker himself describes the web shooter, it seems to have applications beyond that. And so that's why it's really important to, at the front end, carve out what the business is, what kind of restrictive covenants might apply, what qualifies as confidential uh, information of the company and trade secrets of the company, and even what are corporate opportunities. Because I think everyone makes some really good points. But playing devil's advocate for Miss Stacy, it's to the extent that her web shooter can be used as, you know, a fluid cast or something of that nature, where she could then argue that it's not necessarily competing. It's a, also the question of, did she develop this prior to the relationship or was it just an idea when the business was formed and she actually developed it while working for Maidman? I think that's an important fact that would affect the outcome of the issues here. Yeah, and I think Judge Leach mentions a good point because obviously we are focused on LLC agreements, what we refer to in Colorado as operating agreements, but a good attorney could should consider having the high-level directors and managers execute an employment agreement that addresses many of the issues about essentially work for hire for intellectual property and who owns what. And if you're using the assets of the company to develop further IP, who is the owner of that IP? So though we're focused on the operating agreement, a lot of the gaps can be filled by other contractual documents that, are, that a good corporate attorney could advise you on. I always like the, the idea of, of uh, either incorporating it into the operating agreement or having a separate, as Bansa mentioned, 
a separate membership agreement that lays out a number of these issues in more detail. And, and really, the focus here is the protection of the company, of the business. And that's what we're, we're seeking to focus on. What can we do to, to ensure that the business is in the best position to prosper and, and survive? And these unfair competition issues are always, you know, items that get in the way. There are also a bunch of issues, I think, that were raised. And I, I think Jung Suk alluded to this earlier, but there, there are a fair number of significant oral agreements here. Uh, we've got oral agreements about potentially increasing Stacy's share or membership interest in her salary based on the success of the company. And, and the one that struck me was an agreement that Stacy would be employed by the company as long as she's a member. Now that's, a, that's a pretty significant right because at least in Delaware, uh, members of entities do not have a right to be employed by the entity just because they're a shareholder or a member. So the question then becomes whether or not those oral agreements can be proven. Parker Pete has walked in uh, to Attorney One and has told the story, but Attorney One has to know that there's another side of the story. He should probe Parker Pete to say, what would Stacey Gwen say if she were arguing her case? Because too often clients only see their side, and if you want to resolve a case prior to litigation or you want to settle it after litigation is started, it's important that your client have some appreciation for the position of the other side. If it's going to be, I'm just right, and I'm absolutely was very good to Stacy, and she's being ungrateful, and, and if that's the kind of attitude uh, Parker Pete has, it's going to be very hard to uh, resolve this short of a trial. And Judge, you mentioned a good point because a lot of these form agreements are pretty skimpy on, on essentially what I would call divestiture provisions. Often, there is not many viable options to keep the business going if, you're, if it's a viable business and force a buyout unless the provisions are pretty explicit. And again, these form provisions don't really address the address those scenarios very well so often you're forced to think about only a few statutory provisions for the L, that the llc act often provides such as dissolution that i think uh, odera mentioned earlier on and that to me is like the nuclear option that we hate to hear and we hate to pursue especially if it is returning a profit of six percent annually uh, you know that's always the the finesse and the, the great advice that I think good lawyers give to their clients in terms of how do you get out? Can you get out? What are the mechanisms of getting out? What are the triggers? Obviously, the various states' LLC acts will control the operating agreement, of course. If this is a situation where, you know, it almost brings up the other issue, does Obviously, Parker Pete wants to get her out, but if she's competing, can you squeeze her out at a real big discount and then prevent her from competing? So there's a, a whole 
number of issues that prop up here that, you know, need to be evaluated and considered. And I think this is where, in my opinion, I think the strategy of good lawyering comes into play. If you have a very experienced lawyer in this area that can come up and develop a strategy, many times, I'm sure Judge Leach has seen this more than than any of us, that sound strategy can really lead and do real justice for, for clients. Absolutely. It's important to know uh, what, your, what your options are, both judicially and extrajudicially. Why don't we talk for a moment, what would some potential judicial remedies be? There was some discussion that this is a profitable company, and how do you separate the parties? You know, a, a claim for dissolution in Delaware has typically, at least recently, been met with a agreement by the court that the company is worth more as a going concern than it is uh, being liquidated. So typically in Delaware, if there's a dissolution, what, what you're looking at is the sale of the company uh, to potentially either partner or possibly to a third party, uh, frequently in an auction context. context. Again, uh, I think John mentioned an earlier point, which I can't address, I cannot address with these comments, but if the members have equal votes as a member, then there's the deadlock. But assuming you can make decisions pursuant to a majority membership interest, Parker can represent the company, hire essentially an attorney just for the company, and pursue or explore injunctive relief against Basie to see if essentially we can stop what we perceive to be uh, illegal competition. We must stop now and leave you in suspense. But tune in to the next episode of We Are Never, Ever, Ever Getting Back Together, a business divorce case study where Parker Pete implements extrajudicial remedies to address his perceived concerns with Stacey Gwynn. And just as importantly, you'll get to meet the marvelous and magnificent Stacey Gwynn. Tune in to the next episode. Ladies and gentlemen, until then, stay healthy and safe. And on behalf of our panel, we thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.